The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in the podcast, we have the latest in our occasional series of interviews with this year's Turner Prize nominees. I spoke to Helen Kamak at the Whitechapel Gallery, where her project for this year's Max Mara Prize has just been unveiled. But first this week, Vermeer. In May, it was revealed that the composition of one of the artist's most famous paintings, Girl Reading a Letter at an Open Window, was not as Vermeer had originally intended. A painting of Cupid on the wall has resurfaced on the canvas, after two and a half centuries behind a layer of paint. During restoration work, conservators discovered, to their surprise, that the Cupid, which dominates the upper right section of the picture, was overpainted long after the artist's death, and not by Vermeer himself. Earlier, I spoke to Uta Neidhart, the senior conservator at Dresden's Gemälde Galleria, about this extraordinary discovery. I began by asking when it was that they realised that it wasn't in fact the Dutch master that had covered up the Cupid. When we started the restoration process in 2017, we were in the opinion that the overpainting was made by himself, by Vermeer himself. And we started to clean the painting we didn't expect something else. We wanted to make it clean. We wanted to take off all the old varnishes and the old uh, retouchings and all these things like which lay on the surface like a sandwich. And during the cleaning process, when our restorer, Dr. Schertzle, uh, came closer to this overpainted part in the back wall, he mentioned that there was a difference in the solubility of this part in comparison with the other parts, for instance, at the edges of the painting, where also we found a lot of old retouchings, varnish, and so on. So at that point, he stopped. And then we, uh, together with our experts commission, which we had been installed uh, some time before, we started a big discussion and we decided to make samples, paint samples. And these paint samples were the first key uh, for our first um, idea to think about that the overpaint was not uh, done by himself. As the paint samples showed that between the original paint of the cupid and the overpainting, there was a layer of varnish and a layer of dirt and a second layer of varnish. And then, still then, the overpaint came. So that meant to us that there was time between the surface, the original paint layer of the cupid done by Vermeer, uh, was open, was to be seen, was to the surface, and the time the overpaint came on. And we found uh, some reasons for thinking that this was the right idea um, later when some other points occurred. One of the other points was when the restorer started to remove a little part of this overpaint, he found a wonderful outworked, untouched surface with an old crackling. So even the original paint layer of Vermeer had been cracked. And there was also a little scratch we found that was happened not by the restorer by accident, but that happened some 250 years ago when the cupid still was um, to be seen. 
let's go back to the dirt because this is the key, of course the key is that is that the, there's this layer of dirt which means essentially that the the painting was exposed to the air when the cupid was uh, yeah so so tell tell us about that so you could you could tell that basically it was dust yeah that's very uh, clear that if if a painting is exposed to humidity to air to yeah wherever it hangs i would say about 50 years or so then you found you can get a lot of dust and dirt on the surface that's very normal that happens also today and the nice thing was that we found this dust between the two varnish layers and yeah that meant a lot of us yeah so so you can tell that i mean would the first layer of varnish have been done by vermeer for instance i don't know was, was that a common technique that he would use yes that that is our assumption. We think that this first layer was done by himself and uh, the restorer was and still is able to serve part of this original varnish because he is removing the overpaint by the help of a scalpel under the microscope. And so he is able to divide these different layers and there is still some traces of the original varnish on top of the original paint. They are, we are very proud about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, because I suppose what, what, what one is used to with these sort of things is that, is that the varnish is corrupted, it becomes discoloured, and it's the first thing that you remove when you're restoring, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But uh, there was not enough time, I think, uh, to, to remove it. So it was covered after uh, some decades by the overpaint. <laughs> Do you have any, um, is there any provenance which tells you who may have done the overpainting, who may have painted over the Cupid? Mm, this, that was also one of the most important questions we asked ourselves, or I asked myself. Yes, there are some interesting facts. The painting came to Dresden in 1742 uh, as a present to the collection of the Elector August III, that was the father of August the Strong, the famous August the Strong from Saxony. And when the painting arrived, Dresden, there was a little description in a letter we found, and there was no word about a cupid or or a little boy or a figure in the background on the wall. There was only the description of the girl reading and the window and the room that that was all we could find in this letter so um and the painting got a new frame immediately when it entered the uh, the Dresden collection that happened to all of the paintings when they came to Dresden they immediately got a new frame so maybe you know this famous Dresden uh, rococo framing system so from that we we knew that the change had been done before. So we think that that happened in the first part, in the first half of the 18th century, uh, somewhere in, in one of the former collections where the painting was. So we have two ideas or two um, information about former possessions. The one is the collection of the Prince de Carignan. He had a wonderful big collection of paintings, even Dutch and Flemish ones. And from his collection, the agents of the Saxon Elector chose 29 paintings 
to acquire them for the Saxon Electra. And in the course of this acquisition, they got the 30th, the last, as a present out of the deal, they called it in the source. And that was our Vermeer. Uh-huh. But at, at that time, when the painting arrived Dresden, they called it Rembrandt. They didn't know anything about Vermeer. They only saw that was a wonderful, a very good painting, and they gave them the name Rembrandt. <laughs> they didn't, didn't, it didn't occur to them that, that the style was entirely out of keeping with, with Rembrandt. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's there's one idea. When they decided to give the uh, Saxon elector a wonderful present, an important present with a big name, then they choose Rembrandt and say maybe change the painting to be a bit more Rembrandt-like before. This is one idea. Aha, uh-huh, so they think by covering up the Cupid, it, it gave the sort of um, maybe, the greatest maybe. fairness. We, uh-huh. we, we know for sure that there was no conservational or restorational reason for that, as the surface of the Cupid painting is perfect. There are no damages or big losses or what else. That, that was not the reason to do this overpainting. It must have been an aesthetical reason, we think. How extraordinary. And of, and of course, you know, ever since then, since Vermeer has come back to being a famous artist and not forgotten anymore, this, is, this has been one of his most famous paintings. And I have to say, I love this painting in, its, in the state that I've known it in. It's such a beautiful painting, and, part, <laughs> and partly because of that spareness, that extraordinary sort of vividness that the figure by the window has. Um, what do you feel about how, how the, the revelation of the, uh, of the Cupid changes the nature of the picture? Of course, it changed a lot. Um, and there are a lot of, of people who, who regret about that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, having dealt with Vermeer already a couple of years, I uh, very soon started to compare this new discovery with all the other Vermeer paintings in his oeuvre. And we, of course, found soon that with the Cupid as a picture within a picture, he did the same what he did several times in his oeuvre. So that was a very common subject, to include a a painting into his painting on the back side of a wall of an intimate room. So that's not a, a surprise. The surprise was only that we found out that it, it was not him who did this change, this overpaint. It was another hand from a later time. As we know from his over in other cases, in other paintings, for instance, the Berlin uh, young woman with the pearl necklace, he changed the uh, walls and the back himself. And he also did a lot of corrections in some of his paintings. He corrected some parts in the foreground and some details. Somewhere we found that in all in, in almost every of his paintings, also in our Dresden girl with the with the letter. And uh, so that was not a surprise to me that he um, wanted to compose a picture within an intimate space with a girl in the same way how he decorated a lot of other rooms. Do you think, in a way, the, the picture has become 
somewhat less enigmatic now in the sense that because Cupid is there hovering over her shoulder, the 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 letter she's reading must be a love letter, mustn't it? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, I myself, I have to change my former ideas. I um, Until last year, I always... Uh, discuss the painting this way that I said um, Vermeer wanted to hide the content of this letter he wanted to hide the expression of the painting we don't know about the, this letter maybe it's a it's a shopping list or, <laughs> or something else <laughs> you cannot know and maybe you know that he himself also changed some parts in the foreground in the first version he added a a big rumor, a wine glass on the uh, foreground of the painting, and then he overpainted it by the green curtain, and he at first changed the position of the girl, and he did a lot of things. And in this uh, course, I always thought he also um, wanted to cover the cupid on the back. He wanted to, to make the painting a bit more yeah, hidden, to have a secret in the painting, as you, you told but now we know uh, we were wrong. He wanted to be open, what he also wanted to be in some of the other paintings. Now we know it's it's a love letter. It's very clear. And and tell me, so I know that the half restored painting you've already shown to the public, but it's is it right that it's now gone back into restoration and it may well still be in restoration for another year or so? Yeah, that's right. We had to close this little show just last Sunday. Um, as we are closing the whole gallery for, for uh, a big refurbishment and rehanging. And the painting uh, goes back to the restoration studio. Yeah, that happens tomorrow. <laughs> and then uh, the restorer will um, need some more time. We think about one year to finalize this restoration. This is not only to take off this overpaint. There are also... Huge parts on the edges, on all four edges, he has to continue, um, and it's a, it's, it's a big work. Uh, so, so, so in other in other words, you've got to attend to the sort of more rudimentary elements of your restoration that you were intending to do in the first place before you made the big discovery about the cupid. Oh yes, of course. Uh, we in the first uh, phase we thought to be ready with the painting uh, this year. Is we are going to open the whole gallery this December, and but it changed a lot. And with this discovery and uh, all this um, investigation and research we have to do, and which follows this discovery, it takes much more time, of course. And now it is a, a huge project of uh, two and a half or three years. Okay, well, I, I wait with bated breath, and I'm sure lots of other Vermeer lovers will be too. Thank you so much for talking to us. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Now, Vermeer is part of a major new show that's just opened at the Prado Museum in Madrid. Velázquez, Rembrandt, Vermeer, Parallel Visions is the first iteration of a show that we discussed with the Rijksmuseum director, Taco Dibitz, on a podcast earlier this year. But the Prado and the Rijksmuseum are taking very different approaches to the same subject. Joining me on the line from Madrid is Alejandro Vergara, the senior curator of Flemish and Northern European paintings at the Prado, who's organised the exhibition. Alejandro, um, one of the important things, it seems to me, is that many of these artists have been 
sort of simplified into sort of national schools. That is to say, Velasquez is a Spanish painter. Rembrandt is a Dutch painter. Is, is one of the intentions of your show to sort of challenge that? Yes, it is. I should add that I didn't really set out with that in mind. You know, as an art historian, the way it works with me, at least, I think with most of us, is that every time you approach a project, it may be out of, you know, some historical intuition that you have or out of uh, specific conditions that happen to do with the policy of the museum at a given time and 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 place. Um, it's really the words that dictate what I think. I approach them, I start looking, I start thinking. I know art history, so I know about what may be relevant or interesting related to whatever work I'm looking at. So I would say that in this case, it was mainly looking at Velázquez's Villa Medici and Vermeer's Little Street that I thought about the striking similarities, which are very obvious, in light of especially how these pictures have been seen as being representative of their individual nations and therefore it's very different. So I wouldn't say I set out with that in mind, but I, it, it, indeed it's very much my intention when the project, once the project started to make that point. And again, I think it's important to stress the fact that this is not uh, something that I brought a priori to the actual works of art, or, you know, to this project, but something that came about as I was looking and thinking about the paintings and with the paintings. Uh, your first section is um, concerned with image and fashion. And one of the striking things is that the, the, the paintings of the portraits of Dutch people and Spanish people have a remarkable similarity in terms of their dress. Can you explain what that's about? Yeah, they do well. When you walk into the show, you see a number of pictures, maybe 15 or so, starting with Greco, ending with Rembrandt's amazing The Syndics from the Rice Museum. And all these people dress the same way. And if we had shown pictures uh, of Englishmen or Italian gentlemen or people from other parts of Europe from about 1560, 1550 to about 1620, 25, the same thing would have happened. These people were all dressing mainly in black for formal occasions. Portraits, of course, are formal occasions. And they're all dressing in black silk, mainly if they have money, if not wool or cotton, but still black with these um, big white rough collars. And that's the way they all dress. And this fashion was identified at the time by some authors, such as Baldassare de Castiglione as Spanish, but in fact, it's pan-European. It probably comes from the Dukes of Burgundy in the 15th century. And it is imported into Spain by Charles V and Philip II in the 16th century, and it becomes popular in Europe, possibly as a result of Spanish influence because of the power of Charles and Philip. But it very soon becomes a pan-European way of dressing. And it's really interesting if you look at the history of fashion and the terms used to describe certain parts of outfits that they mixed a lot of different origins. In Spanish, for example, the way a cape is called as an item that comes from Hungary or Germany and England, they speak about Spanish leather shoes. Uh, and this, this goes on and on and on. So there's clearly this web of um, influences moving throughout the continent and defining dress. A very interesting thing is that from about 1620 onwards, in most of Europe, you start seeing a lot more color in, in outfits. Um, you see that in... Van Dyck's paintings, for example, after, say, 1630, think about Van Dyck's paintings of the royal circle in England. 
in the Netherlands and in Spain, the taste for black goes on beyond the time that it lasts in the rest of Europe. And I'm not sure why that happens. I think it may have to do with the fact that they both identify with the origin of that way of dressing. The Dukes of Burgundy governing both Spain and the Netherlands originally. And, you know, possibly the elites of both Spain and the Netherlands think of this black outfit as being their way of dressing. But the Syndics is a picture from 1661. It's very late by then to be dressing in, in black. And you find that in Spain and in the Netherlands. Earlier on, it happens all over Europe. Now, what about the style? I mean, can you can you say in that first room, can you draw any distinctions between the paintings that are made in, in, in the Netherlands and those made in Spain? Well, I would say absolutely not. Of course, it's hard to say that because I know my art history and most of us, most art lovers that come to a show like this know enough at least to recognize the style of Rembrandt or Franz Hals or Greco or Velázquez. And therefore, you immediately know where a painting is from. I bet that if we didn't know that, if these were paintings by anonymous artists or by artists who are not as well known, we really would not be able to distinguish one country or the other. I'm pretty sure about that. But, but then again, it's hard to to say because we come with this knowledge and Greco is very easy to recognize for an art lover and so is Velázquez and so is Franz and so is Rembrandt. So you know very soon where these people are from because you know who they are still in spite of that the the way these pictures are hung in the gallery they all look out of you it really is like you're walking into this room of people looking all out towards you all dressed in the same way they're all basically from one same place which is not holland or spain but europe really and of course they have common origins in terms of the painters who inspired so many of these artists i mean you know just one example is that obviously titian influenced both the dutch school and the spanish school absolutely titian and antonis moore also who is an artist from utrecht he's dutch he paints in antwerp in spain and england he contributes with titian to create an international language of portraiture and other local painters follow that for many decades and it's not only about Dress, of course, dress is part of real life, but it's, a, it's also about where to place hands, uh, how to pose the sitter, how to, you know, the, the, uh, the, the language of, of a certain type, a certain way of painting portraits, posing sitters. It's very international as well. And indeed, as you were saying, it's based on mainly Flemish and Italian prototypes from the 16th century. And then it becomes a pan-continental, the pan-European language. Uh, shortly thereafter. It's really interesting also if you look at someone, for example, such as Antonis Moore, who when the Dutch nationalist art historians are trying to write the early history of the painting of their nation, they don't really know what to do with him. He's too international. He paints for the Spanish administration of the Netherlands, from which the new Netherlands will become independent. And they really don't know what to do with him as kind of an early predecessor of the Dutch school. And one historian goes on to say that he is an artist that does not express um, Dutch nationhood in his art. Uh, so you can see the great effort that people have to make to kind of squeeze or shape or mold art history, the mold facts into their own version of art history. And then, of course, two of the big names in your title, Rembrandt and Velasquez, obviously these giants of European art of this period, would not have known, or at least we don't have any uh, evidence of them knowing of each other. But were there contacts between other uh, artists and the two schools in, in other ways? 
There may be some personal contacts in some cases. For example, Terbruggen and Rivera may have been living in fairly close um, quarters in neighborhoods devoted to foreign artists in Rome when they're both there in the early 17th century and both making an aim as followers of Caravaggio. What's interesting is that each one of them spreads Caravaggio's style back into their own country in different ways, and they both make contribute to making Caravaggio's in an international language. Um, Velázquez may have known of Rembrandt at a certain point because Rembrandt made a lot of prints and prints were a way of disseminating fame and making money. I very much doubt that Rembrandt would have ever heard of Velázquez because he's really a court painter who paints primarily at court and his works of art really hardly leave Spain until the 19th century with an exception, which is his two trips to Rome. But of course, Rembrandt never went to Rome. Velázquez paints one of the popes in Rome, Innocent X makes a few other portraits. Some local painters may know of him, but he's not a big part of any local history of Italian or European painting until much later. So, yes, you know, by and large, um, almost everything we show in, in, the, in this exhibition is similar paintings made by artists who did not know each other, could not have known each other, did not influence each other at all. There's a couple of exceptions. There's a little section in the show that calls attention to precisely the opposite. Three small instances where a uh, Spanish count, a political negotiator in 1648 in Germany, where he's negotiating a peace treaty with uh, the Netherlands. He hires a Dutch painter to paint his retinue in the signing of the peace treaty. We know that Murillo in Seville is working for some Dutch merchants and is influenced by Dutch paintings that they know of. And we know that Philip IV of Spain commissioned landscapes from artists working in Rome in the 1630s, and that included some Dutch landscape specialists. But for the most part, um, the kind of similarities we're talking about are the result of belonging to a common culture, thinking about art in a similar way, in spite of the fact that these people would not have known each other. And of course, you talk about a peace treaty there. One of the key factors in all of this is that is that these two countries were at war. And I just wonder how much it, this affected things for artists in this period, um, and particularly in the exchange of those artists that did produce prints, for instance. Um, and also, obviously, it's the 80 years war, but, but, but 80 years war doesn't tell you the full story, does it? Because war didn't happen continuously and rage for 80 years. There were low points, high points of activity in that context, right? That's right. Yeah, the war comes and goes. It becomes a part of everyday life at certain points, and it's really quite peaceful for decades. Really, at the the final decades of the war, as far as the the war between Spain and the Netherlands, the Netherlands is de facto already an independent nation in power. It's just not accepted legally until the 1640s. Um, you know, the the war is 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 has an effect on painting pictures such as. The Surrender of Breda at the Prado by Velázquez or The Night Watch by Rembrandt at the Rice Museum. Those are two pictures that have propaganda at its source, even though they're magnificent pictures that go way beyond that. But they are about you know pride and victory and pride and military preparedness and so on. The other reason why the war matters in the context of this show or of the idea that we're trying to put forth is because the war caused... 19th century historians especially, but also a bit earlier, starting maybe starting with Hegel in the early 19th century, to focus on the Netherlands as a very new and different kind of country, closer to democratic values and economic 
uh, organization that we live with nowadays than the old monarchies in Europe. And since the war cost a very new type of society, Hegel thought, and with him a lot of other later generations of, of historians, that the art produced in that nation was also very different, very new. And that's what's not so true. Um, you know, a new society speaks in the same old artistic language. I should remind you also, or our listeners, that uh, we're not saying there are no differences between Spain and the Netherlands. We're talking about art and only art and art history. We're not even saying there's no difference between Spanish and Dutch art. What we're saying is that though the differences have been greatly stressed and the similarities have been simply ignored as if they were not interesting. And, that, and, and I suppose that one of the great things about this show is you get to you get to show that in depth with some of the greatest paintings that have ever been made. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just worry about when I think about people walking into the show is that they're walking into a very tight script, a very clear idea about what what we're what we're trying to say. But they're going to run into incredible paintings. This is more like a museum than like a show, really. And you know, in the end, painting is freedom. Pictures open doors into different kinds of imaginations. And you look at a fantastic Vermeer or Rembrandt or Rivera or Velázquez, and you know, why should you think of historiography and problems of 19th century nationalism and so on? So. These two relations to these works of art should run parallel to each other in the experience of the viewer. But still, it is very striking, the last wall of the show where you see the Villa Medici and the Little Street by Vermeer. Paintings are incredibly similar in size and aesthetic. Just the idea that one could walk by these buildings and think them worthy of being painted is rather striking, given that they're about nothing special. There's a few people wandering around them doing nothing special again. But they both think of painting them. They do it with a very similar tone, similar size, similar geometry, similar asymmetry. Uh, They never knew each other. So, you know, my point here is that the painters making these works come from very different types of societies. Yet what they're making is very similar. And it is so because they're both part of a chain of a long chain, which is the history of European art. And having that common language is something that is worthy of thinking about. That is a common heritage, and that is as true as something that brings people together as differences in you know, economy may be equally true in bringing people apart. But why consider only one kind of evidence and not the other? I have to ask you what it was like, because obviously you knew you were going to be pairing these two works, and yet still... There must have been, you know, this is what you live for as a curator, right? To see those two unbelievable masterpieces, one by Velasquez, one by, by Vermeer, next to each other in the flesh for the first time ever. It must have been extraordinary. Yeah, it's a good question. It makes me think about how, how I have lived through this whole experience. It's kind of still going on. This open on, opened on Monday and we have a lot of press and donor events still. So I still haven't been able to kind of stop and digest all this. Um, I would say that I get excited first about the idea that pops into my mind stemming out from the paintings. And then as I go back to the paintings, I feel relieved that it's confirmed. And then again, beyond that, I think I just relate mainly to the extraordinary beauty of of these paintings. And um, it's just incredible what we have in those rooms right now. So I, I, in a sense, I have a hard time marrying these two concepts, a strictly scripted show and fantastic works of art. The pictures do talk differently 
to each other and to us when they're moved from one wall to the other. It happens at home even when you move one painting or a piece of furniture, suddenly you see it differently. And that happens mainly with our 35 paintings from the Prado in this show. They were all in a different place with different companions. But yeah, yeah, very exciting, really. I think of Velázquez and Vermeer now. They see, in that wall, particularly, they seem to be artists with a similar ear, almost, as if you could think of them listening to music in their cars with a similar kind of volume. <laughs> Where we compare Rembrandt and Velázquez, Rembrandt seems to have a higher volume. Velázquez, I think, needs a little more time to absorb as a, as a spectator. They're all quite different, really, as well. But it's a, the difference is personal. It's individual talent. It's not nationhood at, at all. Well, Alejandro, I think lots of our listeners will be rushing to the Prado, as will I, in due course. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Velázquez, Rembrandt, Vermeer, Parallel Visions is at the Prado in Madrid until the 29th of September. We'll be back talking to Helen Kamuk after this. This month is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots in New York. As with a number of world-changing moments, the protest began with an almost everyday occurrence, a habitual police raid to close down the gay bar Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. But this time, the community fought back. Mass street protests quickly coalesced into a national and international movement, demanding civil rights for LGBTQ people. Its legacy is all around, not only in profound social and legislative change in many, though not all, parts of the world, but also very visibly in the creative arts. A selection of photographs marking this seismic event and LGBTQ culture more widely is being offered by Bonhams in Stonewall at 50, an online sale from the 27th of June to the 10th of July. Bonham's head of photography in New York, Laura Patterson, said, We've assembled some great images by photographers such as Herb Ritz, Nan Goldin and Robert Maplethorpe. And I'm delighted to say that part of the proceeds of the sale will go to support the Sir Elton John AIDS Foundation. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Now, Helen Kamak is shortlisted for this year's Turner Prize, but last year she won another award, the Max Mara Prize for Women at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. She spent several months in Italy working on the project and the results are now on view at the Whitechapel. As she was putting the finishing touches to the show and to a performance in which she sings an aria from a Barbara Strozzi opera alongside a jazz trumpeter, I went to the gallery to meet her. Helen, you've won the Max Mara Prize, which means that you get to go and do a residency in Italy. How much freedom do you have in terms of where you go? I guess it's an interesting question, actually, because... I I actually had no idea where I was going to go before I went, um, but I had a curator who curated the whole of the residency and we had to make a proposal about what we wanted to do with the six months. And so my proposal was about what I wanted to explore, what I wanted to research. And so the curator read that and gave me a proposition about which which six cities she thought I would find most interesting. So that's how it came about. So, of course, I had freedom in it. I could have said, no, I don't want to go there. But actually, I knew it was based in something that had been thought through <laughs> for quite many, many weeks. So, yeah. So tell, tell me about that concept that you had. So you knew before you were, you were going to Italy that you were going to look at particularly these historical composers. Yeah, I think they were my starting point. Um, I have I I think I'd been to Italy perhaps once in my life um and so I didn't really know what to expect 
Um, and I, what I thought about, I've been interested in thinking about the voice. Um, I'm very interested in music. So music and song comes into performance for me, but also into the films that I make. Um, and so I decided to kind of look at Italian culture and, and music and actually got completely pulled in by the Baroque period. So that was my starting point. So um, I think that informed where I went initially on the residency, but it also informed um, me falling back and, and looking back through the way that I'd been working. And something that kept coming up over and over again is lamentation and the idea of lament. Um, so bringing the ideas together, I suppose, of particularly Baroque music, um, composition and the voice um, and lament. So that was that was the gelling moment when when I first heard some Baroque music. And and you focused on two particular composers, two two women composers. Yeah. So uh, um, Barbara Strozzi and Francesca Caccini. Um, and and I have to be completely honest. It was because I was completely transfixed by the music. That was. There's no other starting point for me other than that. It moved me. I I felt something when I hit when I heard music by both of those composers, and more importantly, I suppose I am really interested in jazz and I'm interested in the blues and they kind of recur again in performance that I do, but also in the film work that I make. Um, and I could hear I could hear jazz in baroque, and I could hear blue notes, and and it's to do with the scaling, um, but it's also to do with the way the music's constructed. And so I just I got excited. Throughout your work, you've investigated the un- underrepresented in cultures, and that can be in a very broad range of mm. um, uh, locations and uh, social uh, conditions, but. Uh, are these two composers, in a way, a continuation of that project? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because actually the more research I did, the more I realised how successful both of them were at the time. But what's interesting and what sits really well, I guess, in the in the way that I think of how histories are built is that they disappeared for many years, centuries, in fact. Um, so that's that's the cycle that I'm interested in, is that who is omitted, when they're omitted, and why they're omitted. This idea that people are removed from histories. I guess I have this idea of multiple histories. Um, and so it's about building back, interrupting those histories, rewriting them, rethinking them, um, and having conversations about what's happened for people to be taken out. So um, this idea that they were always obscure and marginalized is actually not the truth you know they were successful they did have um they did have a stage and they did have a voice but somehow over the periods of histories that we've experienced more recently they disappeared can you tell me about how obviously you're not making a historical documentary about these composers so how have you in a way brought these figures into the present well i think the biggest challenge for me was i i perhaps foolishly uh gave myself the proposition um, that I would learn, I would have some classical singing lessons. I've never had any singing lessons in my life before. Um, but I do, you know, I use the voice. So I, I do spoken word and song, but I'm not, I'm not a singer, but I enjoy singing and it becomes part of what I do. Um, so the challenge was to think about how I somehow could allow this music to sit inside me so that as it came from my mouth, um, it was crossing, I suppose, the thing that I'm most interested in is this idea that um, stories and lives can cross time and geographies. And there are connections that can be made between people and experiences that don't have to be about an immediate understanding or knowledge or connection. So this idea that I would try and sing something so outside of, of my own experience. 
and and so you actually had singing lessons I did. and so you'll be doing a performance here at the white chapel yeah yes with a with a jazz trumpeter right yes so i think um obviously i knew that i i couldn't stand in a room and perform a classical piece of music as a classical singer because that's not who i am so i'm singing um i'm singing kesu pofade i'm singing a pre opera lament um as it's written so uh i i've learned it and uh i've practiced it um and i'm singing it as me it's my voice um and my voice is vastly improved from having singing lessons but i'm still not a singer but i'm singing it and um one of the things that i was really excited about was the relationship between voices um and the trumpet is something that kind of came up over the research that i've done so one of the stories that features in the film is um about uh, a nun who was also a composer she was called lucrecia vazana and she wrote i think the most incredible music that she she was part of a, a kind of um, a monastery that was attached so there was a male section and a female section um and in their monastery they played and composed music and it, they became famous around the area in bologna so crowds would come not necessarily for um for prayer but to celebrate the music that she that she composed and this proved to be such a challenge to the to the kind of uh I suppose not just kind of the papal um structures in, that that were in place but also in terms of in terms of gender there was a real problem between the male and the female side in in the in the a monastery and so there were many many issues that came up but one of the things was that in the end the pope banned them from playing trumpets because it was seen to be unseemly for women to play an instrument that they put into their mouths um so it it kind of i mean the story comes into the to the film a little bit and also into the book um but basically the nuns refused and carried on playing trumpets and carried on singing and in the end they were um that that the papal troops were sent in um and they were starved into submission and lucrecia stopped writing music she stopped singing they stopped playing um and the story is that perhaps she kind of lost her mind so it's a really it's a sad story but um uh, the trumpet for me then needed to be there so the the yeah the duet happens and it happens between a classical classical piece of music a classical voice although it's my voice and and a jazz trumpeter and this this idea of lament mm. does it is it, i mean obviously that story in itself is a, a, a is a very lamentable story it's a, it's a tragic story mm. do you bring contemporary stories into the film as well yeah absolutely so um I guess the the film it's it's almost like a wave that happens that, that kind of crosses histories and and times and so uh, it moves from having interviews to having kind of poetic texts to having song to having music um but the interviews are about moments where I'm having conversations with people for example I met a 92 year old who'd been uh, a teenage uh, partisan fighter she was part of a corps where they sabotaged um aircraft in a factory that she worked in and she she told in the interview i think i spoke to her for kind of nearly 3 hours so to kind of reduce it down was really difficult but the stories that she told were stories of lament but they were also stories of resistance and resilience um and and a sense of longing as well so i guess my definition of lament is one of of that of loss and longing but also of the strength and the resilience that comes out of sometimes situations where life is really difficult so I I also met uh, a woman who in Palermo 
um, who was part of a project who'd had a very difficult life experience. And we just had a conversation about what that meant for her and what her life was like now. So there are moments in the film where people are giving very different stories. Um, there's a choreographer who hadn't danced for 25 years who um, who dances and choreographed a piece just for the film um, having had had a conversation with me over dinner where I said oh it would be amazing if you could dance for the film and she was like no no I haven't danced for 25 years and we talked about this idea of lament and and loss and and the next day she said to me do you know what I, I thought about this and actually that's one of my biggest losses the fact that I, I don't choreograph and I don't dance for myself and so that was that's become part of the film and I went back and she choreographed a piece that was about the loss of her mother. So You use your own voice and we've talked about voices already but you use your own voice, you, you narrate mm. a lot of the films and um, your voice, it seems to me, is crucial. Can you tell me about that? How, how crucial do you feel it is? Mm. Well, I think because... When I started to make films, I began by making them very much about my own experiences. So it made complete sense that I would, I was the voice telling those stories. And then the, the more I've, I've begun to, I guess, work outside of my own life experiences or using my family as, a, you know, as a conduit to talk about social issues, the more I've realized that actually what my voice is doing is it's, br it's bringing me into the process in a way um, that means that I have some ownership of what I'm doing. That's really important to me. Um, and it takes it out, I guess, of, of the idea of it being document or fact or um, it, it enables the subjectivity of myself to be in the work. Um, so, yeah, so one of the things that um, I'm quite interested in is questioning the idea of authorship. So in the performances that, that I kind of pull together and write and in, in the film work, I, I might use the text from a philosopher alongside the lyrics from a film, alongside some poetry, alongside some text that maybe I've written. So it's this idea that you can wander between voices and the idea that who you are when you say something, when you read something, when you, um, I suppose, when you invoke something um, is, is as much about who you are in that moment as the person who may well have written something or conceived of it or made it famous or well-known. Um, and for me, this is this idea of the audible fingerprint. So my voice um, is the carrier of the information that I'm bringing together to pull new meaning or new story together by these different voices that come together. Um, and that that's about voice as much as it is about structures of power. You know, the fact that I might say certain words with who I am is different to you saying those words when you are who you are. Um, and that's really interesting to me and it's really important Um and so, yeah, my presence, whether whether that will always be the case, but at the moment, the presence of me somehow in the work is, is quite important to me. Um, the presence of you and the presence of your personal story, as you, as you mentioned, is important. Um, there's an interesting aspect to your career in the sense that you, you didn't study art until in, you were in your 30s. And before that, you studied sociology and you worked as a social worker. I wonder if, was that a severing of, of that connection to that world or do you feel that you've carried some of that through into your work I mean it's an interesting question and I think I think I've had that conversation quite a lot recently because I think and I've it's made me think about it long and hard really um one thing that I know is that when I was a social worker I was the person that I am now 
And now I'm an artist. I'm still the person that I was when I was a social worker. And there's something about the fact that I'm really interested in people's lives. And those things make me feel alive. And so whether I'm working directly with people or whether I'm working indirectly with people or occasionally working with people and and coming in and out so people collaborate with me on performances or they share their stories with me for films or you know no matter how no matter how that happens I I don't think I could ever live my life in isolation so yes I bring with me what I I brought with me and I I certainly bring a, a an openness to people that I developed I had it before I became a social worker but I know with all the different people that I met and I worked with, I learned from them. I learned about myself from them. And I've, I carry that with me when I, when I meet people everywhere I go. And I think, um, in Italy, the generosity I experienced was also about me being really open to their lives and their stories. So someone might sit down and talk to me for three hours and I didn't stop them because actually, even though secretly in my mind, I was thinking, Oh my goodness, this is such a massive editing job. It's, they were being generous and they were sharing something of themselves. And I, and, and that was a privilege. So I think none of that goes away. Um, and hopefully it will never go away. I hope. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose one of the things as well that I've, I've been thinking about is this idea that I worked with people who felt marginalized, who found that their voices were unheard, um, and felt they didn't have space as well for those voices and were people who had potential and had talent, um, but never felt that, that, that the world was interested in them. And so, you know, that's another driver as well as my own experiences. That's another driver, I suppose, or it's another reason why I want to look at whose stories are heard. That taps into a, a really interesting, well, not, not quite debate, but certainly a topic of discussion in the art world at the moment, which is how much art itself can play a social role and a, a role in creating another kind of dialogue in a very fractious moment. Mm. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. The thing that's most interesting about art for me is the potential for transformation, whatever that is about, the, the potential for something to become something else. And um, if you're thinking about social change or you're thinking about political change or moments of crisis, transformation needs to be part of that process. Otherwise, we're stuck. And so it, it makes sense to me. It doesn't mean that every artist has to make work that has a political agenda or has, a, has an intent that's about social change or political change, but that somehow we're engaged in a world that we live in and so that work reflects that and it stimulates dialogue. And no matter how that's done... Um, I think it's really important and it makes sense to me. It makes sense. It doesn't mean that if you make something beautiful that that can't also work in a way that stimulates dialogue that then can be used to talk about other issues. So I suppose what I think is that for me, the thing that's most interesting about art is that it says something and that could be a visual language. It could be something that's read easily or it could be something that's more obscure or obtuse. Um, and, and that's what's really interesting. Now, you've been shortlisted for the Turner Prize and I know that it's it's uncomfortable for artists to be sort of placed in sort of competition, as it were, with, with other artists. But at the same time, the the advantage of the Turner Prize is that you do reach, you know, tapping into what we were just talking about, you do reach an enormous audience. Is is Do you have to just focus on that side of it rather than being troubling yourself with the idea that it's a prize? Um, yeah, one of the things this year... Um, are the other three artists and I have been having discussions about how important it is that we 
consider the idea of a group show, the idea that there's something collegiate that's happening. We've been talking about the relationships between our work. Um, because fundamentally, the idea that we're in competition with each, with each other for a prize is really because there aren't enough opportunities for artists in the UK. And that's the, that's the thing that's really frustrating about it, is that we shouldn't be in competition. No artist should have to be in competition with each other because we work in very different ways. Um, and actually, there should be enough space for everybody be, to be working and thinking and progressing and having conversations in a way that it's not about trying to be the best or trying to, you know, be ahead or seen more fully than the next person. But unfortunately, when opportunities are quite lacking, that's what happens. Um, and so the way that we've been thinking about it and talking about it is, is, is trying to somehow interrupt that and do it in a different way. That's so encouraging to hear. Um, I wonder the the work that for which you were shortlisted for the prize was uh, is the long note, mm. and that's a film that you made to a commission yeah. uh, in Derry, London, Derry. Yeah. Can you tell us more about it? So last year, Mary Kremen approached me. She's the the director at Void in London, Derry, and um, there was it was the half centenary um, of the commemoration of the first civil rights march in Northern Ireland, and um, what she felt was that. A lot of the materials, the events, the projects, the talks that were happening didn't really focus on the role of women at all in the civil rights movement. Um, and so she approached me, I guess, on the back of, of work that I've made previously um, and wanted to have a conversation about how I felt about making a, a film work about um, the women's role in the civil rights movement. And initially I was, I was slightly anxious about it because uh, normally it's quite important that in some way I have some experience of what I'm making work about and so I was anxious about that that I wasn't from Northern Ireland and that I didn't have an understanding necessarily apart from um, I mean apart from having a knowledge about what happened then in the context of what happened I guess in 1968 around the world really in terms of civil rights um, but what she said was, A, she, she wanted to have a woman to make the work. And she was really interested in, in the approach of somebody who might come from the outside and look in and start having conversations with people that was outside of them having their own experience or their own agenda, potentially. Um, and so the more we had conversations, the more I realized that actually I could, I could make the work and I could make it in a way that was sensitive. Because as long as you know what might be a problem you can start to question yourself all the way through your kind of research or the conversations that you have um, and it yeah it became a really interesting process for me and where next because I look just looking at the CV on your website it seems you've got show after show mm. is it daunting yes it is daunting and I think um I think it's a it's it's somehow about getting the balance right of it's really hard when you I guess when you haven't, you've worked with a commission and a commission comes along and then you, the commission might end and then you would go back to your studio and you'll start working on something that's a, an idea that you've had. And for the last probably year, at least year and a half, um, maybe even two years now, and then probably for another year ahead of me now, um, things feel that they're, that they're coming thick and fast and I can't say yes to everything anymore. And that was what I did before because usually things that come to me, even if they're commissions, I know sometimes artists find it difficult to work to commission 
but I actually really enjoy it. I find it really interesting and it, it kind of stimulates my, my thinking and my ideas. But I have so many now in the pipeline. And, um, but I'm excited. I have a, a commission um, for film and video umbrella. That's a, a film that I'm going to be making in, in Rochdale, looking at the uh, cooperative principles. It's the birthplace, at least, of kind of the Western co- cooperative movement. And again, it's, it's about thinking about people's um, advocacy and their agency in their own lives. Um, and so that, that will be an interesting performative piece where we're going to take works from the collection at Touchstones out into the community and we're going to hang them in, in some blocks of flats um, and work with some members of the community. Um, but it's going to be an interesting performative film. And then there are other exhibitions that are happening. The show from Whitechapel goes to Maramotti. We're going to uh, restage that so it's not going to feel like the same show as here. There are different works in the show. It's uh, it's an exciting moment. I'm really excited. And I think it's a kind of a bit, it still feels like a bit of a shock. <laughs> if that sounds, maybe that sounds crazy, but it still does feel a little bit unreal that actually I can, maybe I can live as an artist. This, this, this can be my life now. I'm still struggling with, with, to work. So I still chair a foster panel and I've done that all the way through working as an artist because it's important to me and, uh, it's part of who I am. So there are elements of my life that I'm still hanging on to that I, I don't want to change, but it's getting harder and harder to keep those going. Well, Helen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Helen Kamet's Whitechapel Gallery show, Chasey Poifare, continues until the 1st of September and the Turner Prize exhibition opens at Turner Contemporary in Margate on the 28th of September. You can read an edited transcript of this interview and much more in the July-August print edition of the Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions, so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. Meanwhile, please subscribe to our daily newsletter. For all the latest news, go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and if you're enjoying it, give us a rating or review. It helps others to find us. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. The Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Uta, Alejandro and to Helen, and thank you for listening. Next week, in the last podcast of the current series, we talk to the artist Ibrahim Mahama in Manchester, and we explore a Picasso show in China. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.